Ay, cook it up, whip it up faster. Diamonds cold, sweater shit from Alaska. Ay, I'm getting close to disaster. Ay, boy, to that shit to my pastor. I was flipping, whipping, dipped in the kitchen. These niggas tripping, put the game in submission. I'm Scotty Pippin, but I ball like a piston. A shotty ripping in the front of position. The game is over. My pain is sober. You a lame, a joker. You can't catch me, plus my flow is nasty. All right, that's right, folks. We're back once again, live, in effect, in Greenwood. Bonjour, shalom, and what's up? And welcome back to How You Live in episode 60 the only show recorded in the million dollar studios on top of the chaz tower live in seattle washington how you living chaz you know i'm doing all right i'm doing all right and had a, a pretty chill weekend so far uh you know the news is a little bit crazy these days but yeah can't can't complain overall ever changing as always uh we took most of uh august off for a little summer break we're back and uh, things don't slow down with the Trump administration. No, they don't. Even on vacation. Uh, so this week we had uh, two of the uh, the major campaign, like uh, kind of or- architects, basically, because one of them was his personal lawyer that kind of mm-hmm. kept him in check for everything he was doing with his campaign. And uh, Paul Manafort, which at one time was leading the campaign for him. Indeed. Uh, both sentenced to jail. Or at least charged currently. Well, one was sentenced. That was Paul Manafort because his trial was over um, last week. And Michael Cohen took a plea deal. And now he's going to jail because he's giving them some more information. And there has been smatterings of other Trump associates who have been getting immunity and are also under investigation. Right. And and it's it's kind of coming on the heels of... Uh, several other GOP related kind of, I would say scandals, but you know, it's kind of business as usual as we've, we've been expecting with how they use their campaign funds, uh, with representative Hunter and his wife, uh, being found for misusing campaign funds to the tune of like 280 something thousand dollars. Oh, okay. In which case they basically used, uh, fundraisers as ways to offset dental expenses, travel expenses, uh, different high-priced meals, uh, wow. private engagements with friends, and they would rewrite it into the books as like fake organization names and things that were donation-related or campaign-related. Oh, wow. So Money laundering hard right there. Yeah, basically. And so it's all kind of jumbling together in this one mess of, of uh, you know, basically bad players being in high positions things that we've been calling out the whole time mm-hmm. and and we're we're running into this november election now uh full force and you know it's it's kind of scary hoping hoping that people are still focusing in their districts and the places they need to vote and not being distracted by kind of what's going on with this because mm-hmm. Uh, the Republicans are still mounting like strong campaigns in a lot of these places. Oh no, yeah, there was just a GOP candidate that said Hitler was right that got that won their primary. Yeah, in uh, was that was that Ohio or what was the? I think it's Wisconsin. Yeah, well, Wisconsin. Keep talking, I'll look it up really quick. It, it was Wisconsin. That's right. I knew it was in the uh, the Midwest there. Uh, and and right. So I think we've got maybe one more special election, uh, and then the main. Uh, uh, November ballot will be anything left that's uh, up for grabs. Um, it, it's kind of a uh, a time to to realize that the Democratic Party right now 
has uh, a modern agenda and is trying to, in some ways, you know, link together some of these social dynamics that are kind of tearing families apart right now, as we see in the news as far as immigration and tearing families apart, as we see in kind of the racial divide that we're facing. And it's it's important not to just kind of lose track and momentum because we're seeing the Republican Party kind of pull these tricks again and falling apart. And it's like, oh, it's going to be a, a sweeping easy election. This, uh, this oh, blue it's wave, definitely this, not this and... blue tsunami they keep talking about. Like they're 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 kind of they're foregoing the the actual uh, main mission of uh, let's get people to the. Uh, to the polls yeah and definitely like we talk about millennials but like Mikel and i were both millennials so i think we should be talking more now to gen z i think is what i don't even know what gen z calls themselves so if you don't want to be called gen z if you have a a much uh bigger and or understandable sort of um like way you want us to talk about you know email us as hyl box and say gen z are actually blah 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 but we definitely want you to go out and vote even right. if you're going to vote for Republicans, I don't care. It's better for you to go out and vote and have your voice be heard than to sit at home and be like, I was playing Fortnite and I couldn't be bothered. Yeah, I mean, I want to see the, the modern election get to the high 60s as far as participation percentage. You know, mm-hmm. I want to at least, it would be amazing to break 70 one time, but, you know, as our neighbor who just had their car alarm go off, you can't always control... Right. What you want to control. Exactly. And uh, we need we need to get people to the polls in higher numbers. Uh, that being said, I did skip over uh, a, a common segment, pretty much the original segment on the show, callbacks. So I will take a moment at this time to, to look back and um, talk about anything that's happened in a previous episode that we want to go over now. And I guess kind of going back to where we had to talk about uh, somebody who stood up for something and went up against the uh, the conventions that Trump was going against at a time when GOP was line up or die kind of mm-hmm. you had to be on their side or or you were gonna be you know lambasted by the president. John McCain stood up at one point and made a vote that delayed uh, the vote on uh, at the time. What was it that they were? Um, Oh, they were trying to gut um, Obamacare. It was the final vote on Obamacare, I think, as well. Mm-hmm. And he saved it because they didn't have enough of a an answer for the the different points that he made. If we if they were going to get rid of it, they needed to cover certain areas. And so uh, I would say at this time we pay a little homage to uh, John McCain. You know, someone I didn't always see eye to eye with as far as political. Yeah, but one you could definitely <clears throat> admit um, uh, served his time for his country. Uh, basically the greater part of his life yeah both in the military and uh and as a as a representative uh and senator but uh at that you know i would say he you know he passed away just yesterday uh we we kind of have an interesting turning point in in what a republican is you know he was kind of one of the last like what i would consider almost you know, as far right as we want to see, in a way. Like, if you go further right than John McCain, it, it starts getting into some muddy territory. If you come back from John McCain, you basically get, like, a conservative Democrat or, like, a conservative neutral kind of, mm-hmm. you know, a central-leaning character, um, you know. And uh, and, and it's, it's interesting because that's kind of the movement of the party is to the further right of, of McCain and forever it's going to keep going that way. Yeah, well, 
like conservatism it seems like in america is basically to conserve the hegemony and what i feel like is going on right now in the with republicans is that it's the length they'll go to reserve the hegemony is getting to the uh, radical and unthinkable point where it wasn't at before and i definitely think that when it comes to like his viewpoints and where he was when it comes to the conservative political spectrum he was always in like more of the it might be not taboo but like a folk way and we'd be like yeah no we disagree with you on that but i do feel like he is probably someone who uh what am i trying to say um I do feel like he'll. He, we do need to see more people who will want to reserve the good things about America, which I think he wanted to, but also call bullshit on the bad things, which I think less and less conservatives are it, doing now. Yeah, he fought. I mean, the McCain-Feingold bill is the bill that fought to get down dirty with uh, pork barrel and campaign finance reform, you know, mm-hmm. and it got as close as it could, and everyone started not liking their skirts getting lifted up, and so they started saying, you mm-hmm. know, we're not gonna. We're not gonna let you see this. We're not gonna. We're we're canceling this council. We're you know they didn't want anyone to see that everyone was you know using pork barrel to to design projects in their states. Some of which end up being beneficial, but most of which end up being you know really expensive on the federal side. Mm-hmm. And so basically, that all got kind of diluted, and the information and the powers that it created was were limited. And so, you know, McCain is definitely an interesting guy in that, that he would he would go against what his party almost would want sometimes mm-hmm. as long as it kind of hit his own values. And that's a respectful point I can I can give. So in his passing, uh, I give him the callback unless you uh, you have any other callbacks. No, I mean, I do because I was thinking about John McCain because he just passed away yesterday and I kind of like I knew there was going to be this instance where you can either paint John McCain in a very nice and beautiful light or because I was looking at my Facebook and there were folks who were like, John McCain is a beautiful person. We loved what he did. Like he's honorable and all that. And then there were people giving him shit (laughs) and I was like, right. And I do feel like there is some degree where when people die, people are probably like, you shouldn't say any bad things about him. He should always be classy. Definitely Obama was classy about him when he passed away. But I do like the fact that with John McCain being the Republican that he is, his death can spark a lot of conversations. Because I think it can, we can be critical of the fact that since, I think, 1927, there have only been three senators like or primary senators for Arizona, and he was the third one. So that means he was senator of Arizona for a long ass time, which is great when you paint it in the light of that he did a lot of service to his country, but kind of fucked up when you paint it into like the same person through many different generations have been bringing the same ideas to the table. And it's more of an uh, expose of how many senators are long term and old and not just John McCain. But we'll see what happens when when there's a special election presumably for that seat soon and how that may change but yeah so that's what i feel about it i do like what he did i do like the level of class that he showed during his presidential race and we can be critical about him for bringing sarah palin into the limelight but that's a whole nother thing (laughs) but yeah she probably would have made a rise anyway just because she was kind of already getting attention from such a small place in uh 
coming from a mayor of a of a small town and then governor of of the state but like you know she she wound up somehow uh, getting enough attention even before she, he picked her she probably would have ended up on our landscape anyway yeah but i yes not but, not but, in the way that she did yeah. without being being yeah i was like i think my it would be a question about intensity in that case and you know level of reach like she got a huge reach because she right. was running for vice president right is that is that like omarosa winning the uh the apprentice like so, that's how we all know her or? omarosa has never won the apprentice Didn't she- omarosa has been known for being an asshole on the apprentice and that's why she's well known because for lack of a better term she is the quintessential bitch of the apprentice i think she won one of them no i think we looked this up once and you were like surprised because, uh, yeah, she won one of the apprentices. You think she came in second place and that's how we still know her? No, no. Like, you're talking about a person who watched The, the Apprentice from, like, season one to his most recent season, except for the one with Arnold Schwarzenegger, because I don't own regular TV anymore. Wow. Yeah, she was just a participant. Yeah. I wonder if we've actually talked about this before, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. That's interesting. Okay. Yeah, well, no, I definitely, she only rose to fame because, like, she always got knocked out in the middle, and she also always got knocked out because she was super conniving. Right. Um, I'm going to be different this time and then immediately, like, start playing tricks. Right, no, like, like Donald Trump, like, I remember I was watching a, I think I was watching a show or listening to a podcast, I forget which, but they were talking about her, and they're like, Donald Trump knows who uh, Omarosa Manigold is. Right. The fact that he's angry at her now is not because he didn't know who she is, is that before he thought that she was supposed to be who she was for him. And now she's being who she is for like the American public. And he always has a problem with that. So. Right. Yeah. Well, uh, moving on in the world that we have today, uh, how are you thinking about this current world we live in with the Trump Chinese tariff crisis kind of ongoing and continuing uh, from both sides basically playing as many, you know, as many plays as they can to kind of get the other to, to relent. Mm-hmm. Uh, how have you seen that affecting kind of our world today? Well, I find it interesting because when it comes to our economy, I think, well, Trump has the wrong idea of how tariffs are supposed to work. He thinks he, by putting on tariffs on uh, China, he's hurting China. But, in fact, he's hurting his own constituents. And they won't end until he understands that fundamentally. And I know he had, well, actually, based on a last week tonight that John Oliver did, the person that he has primarily as his um, economic advisor is a kook in a shill. So if that's who's giving him the advice, it makes sense why he's doing the tariffs the way he is because he, um, I'll have to remember his name, but he put out like a propaganda documentary saying that China is going to take away all our jobs and everything. And that's the person who has the ear uh, of the president about our economy. But when you actually talk about, you know, dairy farmers and, and anything with manufacturing, there, there was a, there, there was an interesting juxtaposition because there was one group of people who were steel workers and they got to keep their jobs because they were because he put the uh, uh, tariff on aluminum um, all across the world, but that was a select few jobs where the people who had to use that to build things lost jobs. 
Right. And that's been like the big criticism <clears throat> of it where you might save like five figure worth of jobs uh, uh, in the process of doing that. You lose six figures worth of jobs. So I think the numbers like approximately they used were like 50,000 uh, jobs saved versus 435,000 jobs that would be lost um and then this sort of thing so and i forget where i heard that but uh that's so what he's doing is counterintuitive but he thinks it's intuitive and that's basically what it boils down to yeah and and ultimately it i mean they're gonna have to come up with an agreement because it's one of our biggest trading partners and they Mm -hmm. do still own a lot of our debt and so it's kind of a weird game to play ultimately uh, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. It's just, uh, you know, an ongoing story as, as we, uh, go on. And then also kind of in recent kind of, and always there's so much natural, uh, events going on mm-hmm. locally here. We're being inundated by smoke every other week because of, uh, the wildfires that are continuing both in British Columbia and northern Washington, and then Oregon itself has the same problem going through Portland, getting smoked out from fires they're having in California, mm-hmm. and and then kind of most of the West in general. And then meanwhile, there's you know a hurricane that recently hit uh, off Hawaii, later a tropical storm that's flooded some major streets and cities there. So people are having to kind of deal with the repercussions of that, and we'll we'll be seeing in the weeks following that what what happened. And then there was a major earthquake off the coast of Indonesia, which created it was about a seven, it was like a six nine earthquake. Oh jeez! And caused quite a bit of damage and um, several thousand dead. You know, which is something we don't even like comprehend from a from a natural disaster here in America. Um, and then, uh, just today, even, uh, or yesterday within the last 24 hours, there was an earthquake in Iran, which, oh, wow. uh, was five point something, uh, on the Richter scale. So, and yeah, it's, you know, it's ongoing kind of the natural world, always making its case to being the, uh, the real player in the game. <laughs> uh, what do you, what do you kind of think about like, as we go through this world where, we're still conducting all these kind of push and shove kind of tariff and sanction techniques in the political spectrum. Meanwhile, we're fighting actual wars places. Mm-hmm. So we're committing, you know, complete violence, total war in certain areas. And and meanwhile, we're not rationalizing together. We're not communicating as, as kind of a natural species about... <clears throat> how we go about understanding what's the planet's telling us. We can't even agree on climate change, let alone, you know, agree on where it's safe to build or rebuild or building techniques, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of the deaths in the foreign countries when the natural disasters hit come from, you know, just the engineering standpoint of those nations and kind of where where and where they allow building and the building materials and how, yeah. how well regulated they can be, you know. And, and so, you know, moving forward in this kind of, kind of transition period of of global both meaning this control system that certain people are pulling and you know playing with the pieces and also globalism and the fact that the world itself is awakening to Mm -hmm. to to its neighbors to its even further neighbors and whatnot that can, can we actually get 
enough of a, a degree of participation and understanding to kind of avoid these bigger conflicts that we keep seeing? And can we actually get to a point where, you know, beyond a Trump presidency, uh, like we would be not as worried about borders, specifically not like even nation borders like us in China and us in Russia. Can we get to a point where <clears throat> those have been kind of eliminated uh, due to a, a shared resource or understanding of resource exchange and, and technology exchange? If you can get countries to think win-win, sure, but a lot of countries don't think win-win. Our president definitely doesn't think win-win. Um, so, and I think a lot of our problems are because folks are thinking win-lose, and there's a lot of exploitation and taking advantage of people and all all the markets that affect, um, you know, all of those things. Hold on one second. I got a call. Yeah, they, they, <laughs> they basically... Um, I guess what I'm getting at is, so as we're kind of pushing ourselves towards this nationalism kind of agenda, I mean, now he's even pitting us against markets that are kind of the largest in the world and are profiting our companies for their production and, and manufacturing trade uh, towards this country and from this country. Uh, I I wonder about <clears throat> eliminating the whole push and shove argument, you know, the win-win, you know. Uh, with you know, with with re still having real competition, because we've definitely seen that if if markets relent and they don't feel the need to kind of innovate, they they stale and and they 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 end up creating inferior products to well, the need. Well, I, I think I need to like deconstruct a lot of things for a second. Like, well, so going back, um, when it comes to climate change, you basically have the people say that the climate is very important, and if you keep doing all of these things. You won't fix it. And primarily one of those things is the consumption of fossil fuels. And but there's many people who have an interest in uh, the monetary value of fossil fuels. Um, as I've mentioned before in this podcast, whenever I listen to left, right and center, any idea of oil comes up. Uh, Katrina Vanderhool on the left always goes climate change is a thing. We need to uh, help out with that. And uh, <clears throat> Rich Lowry on the right always goes there's money in the ground. Get the money in the ground. I know climate change is a thing, but when there's money in the ground, get money in the ground. So that's not win-win. That's win-lose. You either, and both sides see it as win-lose. And that's why, <clears throat> but I think for that case, uh, at least in America, for America at least, because around the world it's happening more and more, is getting people to shift to renewables more. Um, to stop the propaganda that is being said about renewables um, on the right all the time. If you watch PragerU videos, they always tell you that climate change is wrong and climate change is bad, and that's because both sides are thinking about it in a win-lose way. So that's why I like where I would do policy-wise is I would tell corporations who are currently in oil um, that they would get corporate subsidy, not subsidies, but like... Um, what is it tax breaks or whatever if they put you know 50 percent of their research and development into optimizing renewables as energy and because if they do that it'll take us away from using fossil fuels and one of the key things to remember in that instance is that electricity does not care how it's made electricity can be made basically you need some use of force to move a motor and then that motor creates electricity 
And however you choose to do that is up to you. It's just that the preference on one side is fossil fuels and the preference on the other side is renewables. And we know renewables, renewables are better, but capitalism says that this is where all the money is because technically right now it's the cheapest on fossil fuels, even though it's damaging in the end. So I think in order for us to fix that aspect of it, I think we need to come together and say, all right, what is the best for both of us so we can maintain everything that we need to maintain? Yeah, it will. And I guess in the in the end, like ultimately the the climate is going to be changed when the market catches up with opportunities that both prevent climate damage and also maybe aid towards its rebuild and also is market affordable. Because once things, once people get convinced the technologies are cost efficient, that they they overwhelmingly aim towards those things, you know. And so it's it's going to be interesting if we can get into, uh, you know, harvesting our own batteries and in cleaner ways of desalinating water and mm-hmm. things like that, you know. But let's not also forget that the the uh, the oil industry puts a lot of money in lobbying for their ability to do things. Yeah, yeah, but they even know they have a finite resource. Well, no, so, no, no. So they're I'm not investing, done. I'm not done. but I'm they're not investing done. in other in other immediate resources as well because they see the finite of their and the and the cost driven is getting so high to find oil anywhere in the world mm-hmm. that that it's becoming a resource that they're less and less divesting their future in and more just kind of trying to get as much out as they have now and 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 earn that money so i think the the oil lobby we're gonna see that kind of go away in the next 25 years as the oil lobby converts its power into these other energy lobbies i mean they're gonna move that money i mean they have hundreds of billions of dollars yeah but they have 200 years of oil left so i don't see that going away in 25 years if they have 200 years of oil left but 200 years of oil left would ultimately lead to the destruction of the climate for at least humans to be able to survive on earth and that's the important thing yeah hopefully they then they they have conscience towards their decision i mean there's lobbies too but like what i was trying to say before is that they not only do the lobbies try to reinforce ideas that they should be able to find more and more places to be able to drill for fossil fuels but they're also the same lobby that squashes the voices of environmentalists and actually having policy that is against damaging the environment and also putting in policy that limits renewables as a resource to be used in a ubiquitous way and it's that one that i wanted to paint uh, paint a picture on that is yeah and we got to fight that i mean we we you know people are definitely releasing more products throughout without using the chain of command that they used to have to use like the the peer reviewed journal chain has almost been reduced by peer reviewed youtube chain you know and it's like if if people are able to kind of get their ideas and studies directly to the masses they can avoid the kind of smear campaign put that idea away because people are already kind of introduced to the concept and they're curious about it so so i think even that will 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 start to relate that and the fact that we're exposed to the engineering techniques and uh to people around the globe who are trying and using these in the field you know with rebuilt parts and things and, mm-hmm. and are actually kind of utilizing you know what we might call a bush fix you know from from you know people in alaska or people in kind of africa always kind of reference or in australia even 
Um, it, you know, but in that kind of style of science is kind of more applicable and it's usually already a renewable or in a sense, a reused kind of byproduct of, of urban society already that, that produces these kind of science techniques that we might not even see here. And I, I like that at least science is being discussed all over the world and being shared in, in, you know, and obviously there's bad science being done and bad science being shared and people, you know, uh, maybe more in the loss of uh, Alex Jones, you know, who since we last broadcast lost his show and eventually his Twitter account for a while. So, but his uh, pod or not his podcast, but his uh, app on iTunes is doing quite well. Yeah, I think they removed the app too. Oh, okay. Yeah, they removed the app and then, um, yeah, all these, yeah, and basically, uh, the only thing he has left, I think, is uh, is his website. Yeah. Oh, okay. So you can get, yeah, you can get him through his website. Uh, that being said, you know, and I mean, uh, you know, both sides of the coin, I guess. I guess, I mean, I, I'm tired of hearing uh, people like Alex Jones, but I guess I don't want to restrict the ability of people like uh, uh, Alex Jones, because I do think that goes down into weird, dangerous censorship territory. Yeah, there that is... And if we're transitioning into that, um, when that first happened, there was definitely people like I was in the, well, I, I guess the always the same stance that whenever that happens is they're a private company. They can do whatever they want. Blah, 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 blah. Right. And I think free speech is definitely touted in America now as freedom from responsibility for what you say, not just like being able to say what you want to say, because people can say whatever the fuck they want like we say whatever the fuck we want on this podcast but if people wanted to criticize it they're welcome to and it it would be on it would be immature of us to get butthurt about it if they wanted to criticize us for anything that we say and that's usually what it seems to happen is someone said the n-word oh my god why are you butthurt that we're criticizing him when we don't like that word what if the only thing they're upset about is that you use the term butthurt (laughs) (laughs) and they're like it it made me feel upset and you're like did you feel butthurt and then it's ironic uh but no <laughs> uh i don't know alex jones is a dumbass uh, he got coffee spilled on him in seattle whatever like he's he's weird like whatever i mean but i guess yeah to some degree comedian in me the podcaster in me gets wary of censorship but uh yeah, I don't know. You're right. I mean, they have the right to tell him no because they're private enterprises. So, and he still has his public public medium because he has his yeah. Uh, he has a website. He has a website. So, so. he's not censored. Right. He, he's just deplatformed. And there, there, you could have a discussion about is deplatforming censorship, and in some ways, yes, but it's only full censorship if they have no other voice to put themselves out there. Right. And there's so much things that you can do yourself these days that it's hard to censor someone's voice totally i mean even a richard spencer has a podcast i mean it's not on any of the large channels but you if you follow him you can listen to it hey you liked comedy bang bang (laughs) next on earwolf (laughs) right richard spencer's gonna get you real pissed off (laughs) oh man Right, so I mean that—that's why I find that argument kind of like I get where people are going, but uh, I watched this one video about how the alt right took their ideas and went took it to the mainstream. So I think what the real criticism is is that you people are disappointed that folks whose ideas maybe shouldn't be in the mainstream because they're sophistry or just straight up telling half truths and presenting them as truth. Um, those people. 
you can make an argument that censoring those people makes sense or they shouldn't have their voices in like the large scale of the public ether but then at the same time if they if you don't have those things you can't criticize them so as long as i'm still able to criticize alex jones i'm fine and as long as he can produce media and upload it to the internet he'll be fine it's when that person would lose the ability to create media and upload it to the internet which they did in you know communist russia and or other fascist regimes where you know if you wanted to make a political cartoon criticizing any sort of public figure and they said no you can't do that like that's when it becomes an issue and that's what the free speech stance is there for so they still so the government can't do that and but private entities doing that isn't that and isn't but there is like what is it a a federal media law that came out in the 1930s that kind of addresses that too i don't know the nitty-gritty of it i need to look into it but that might be the level of protections from censorship of free speech from private corporations or at least uh looking at that again and modifying it for that might be good in this new stance of how extreme is too extreme and many callbacks to the Overton window. Do you think that Alex Jones is so extreme that he's unthinkable? Or do you just think Alex Jones is radical? And kind of where that fits in the whole thing. And where do you think the idea should be in the space? Yeah. <clears throat> Alex Jones, I guess, eventually uh, will find a platform. Because he'll probably edit his show in a way that will appease at least that audience. To get it attracted back to his website. So he'll probably reemerge on the YouTubes and everything. It's not probably a permanent thing. It's probably just that show as it was produced was mm-hmm. removed from those platforms. So to be heard again, the earth will be flat again. And with that, talking about disappointment. Oh, okay. You can't not talk about the city of Cleveland and their Browns. They have a a stadium that's been nicknamed the Factory of Sadness. But they currently have a very popular television show on HBO on Tuesday nights. It's my first clip played for a long time. Here we go. Intro to our divergence, the Cleveland Browns. Hard Knocks returns with an exclusive look at the Cleveland Browns. Can this revamped squad with their number one draft picks and all pro free agents live up to the hype? Who will earn their stripes? Yeah. Hard Knocks, the Cleveland Browns. So the reason I wanted to talk about it is because I've always loved the show Hard Knocks. It always makes you follow normally kind of a crappier team just because of the, uh, the arrangement with the NFL. Playoff teams can withdraw their names from selection and if you've had winning seasons the last three years you can withdraw your name from the selection so the pool is usually kind of small uh but uh basically it ends up with some of the team gets assigned a behind the scenes look to their training camp Um, Mm -hmm. they don't allow it during the regular season because it does give out some information you do see some communication and they feel like in the regular season it would give too big of an advantage no that's totally Uh, understandable similar to the old kind of filming gate that uh, got applied to the Patriots when they were filming other teams practices allegedly Uh, and so with the with the Cleveland Browns on the HBO show uh, they're going to follow them throughout the preseason so they've got uh, two more episodes probably and they'll also follow the cuts and selections 
of the teammates uh, and the team as they go along down to the 53-man starting roster for the first week of the NFL season. Mm. And what I what I wanted to bring this one up for is because the Cleveland Browns are coming off two of the losingest seasons of all time. Uh, I believe they only won one game last year, and they won uh, something like zero games the year before. <clears throat> so this team's on this tremendous losing streak, and and they're basically at the bottom. They're at the bottom of the franchise heap. They're at the bottom of the list, and I think we've all felt that way. In a weird way, we're all the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> we've all disappointed somebody at some point, even with all the pomp and circumstance and and the opportunities that have been given us. Some of them get squandered. Some of the opportunities get lost, and we end up the Cleveland Browns at 0-12 and 0-16 over the course of the year. So I just want to talk about both kind of uh, how they came to be selected for Hard Knocks so that they're there now and we can watch them for the, uh, for the next two weeks and have, have this interesting look. And also what it takes to be uh, a contender, not only in the NFL, but I want to make this a bigger application in life as yeah. we, we go on these journeys, you know, to, to both, uh, you know, branch out the political spectrum and what's going on with that, as well as you know, branch out our entertainment spectrum when I try to go and watch comedy or be a part of comedy, you know, we're, we're also trying to always uh, learn and progress, mm -hmm. much like what the Cleveland Browns have at, at hand. And just to kind of give you a history of it, um, the reason the Cleveland Browns are considered one of uh, the kind of worst teams is because they've gone through so many players since uh, the downturn occurred. So they basically re-got given a team after their first team left town to go to Baltimore. Oh, wow. In the early 90s. Uh, they ended up getting a team back in the 1999 season. And ever since then, uh, they've gone through, let's see, their actual quarterbacks uh, list. Yeah, because I watched the, you told me to watch the first episode of it. I watched the first episode, and it was interesting to see, like, the camaraderie between the players and what it actually takes uh, for them to do well in the NFL. And it's because there are a bunch of young guys and everything about how that mentality is brought into it. But what quarterbacks did you find? So, so what they found is they had, at one point, they had Robert Griffin III. At another point, they had Brian Hoyer. They had Colt McCoy. They had Derek Anderson. They had Josh McCown. They had Tim Couch, famously. Okay. Which is like the you know the older one of all those. Mm -hmm. Brady Quinn went there originally, coming out of Notre Dame, and Brandon Whedon. Uh, all of those. Uh, Derek Anderson probably made the biggest impression. Uh, the uh, the man hailing from I believe Scapoose, Oregon, uh, who who ended up being kind of one of the leaders and got him to a nine game winning. Uh, a nine-game win season in like 2009 or something. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so here's the thing, uh, you know. And then they've gone through uh, just about as many uh, coaches in that time period. Uh, currently, they're coached by Hugh Jack uh, Hugh Jackson. I was about to say Hugh Jackman, which was funny. That that <laughs> I don't think Wolverine would be able to to fix the Cleveland Browns. <laughs> but uh, Hugh Jackman's interesting. He's what you would probably call a player's coach. Uh, he, he speaks to the players on a level of respect and, and, and ability and trust. 
Um, he gives them some some kind of loose leashes to an extent, if mm-hmm. you want to if you want to use that term, uh, which which helps kind of create a camaraderie between him and the players. But it also has burned him a few times. Some of the players have used that l- loose leash in order to kind of have bad conduct, and so uh, he's been quick uh, this season to let those players go. And so he's he's definitely creating a player's coach, but with um, the no bullshit mentality. So it kind of reminds me of a little Pete Carroll, okay. you know. And I know Pete Carroll can come off as uh, a little bit commanding of the roster in a way that it seems like he's smarted some of the people that have left here, or we've had people go into contract talks, you know, uh, which which are all sometimes bigger than the coach. But there's also a racial element, you know. A lot of the players that are performing really well in the Seahawks, for instance, are black, mm-hmm. and Pete Carroll is white. So with Hugh Jackman, he's actually one of the few uh, black head coaches in the league. Uh, he 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 can kind of remove that element of it when he's dealing with these star players, at least. Uh, being that it's no longer a racial issue, it's now a specific office. I'm Hugh Jackson, and mm-hmm. I almost did it again. And and you're playing at this level, and we know you can play to this level, or your perf- your off the field stuff is getting to this point. You know we can't go past that. Uh, and 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 he's having he's having an interesting response because people are recognizing the people that are leaving are conducting themselves bad, mm-hmm. and so it does seem like it's creating a locker room based on just kind of what we see on the TV show of players that are committed to the team. Yeah, he's like team dad. I remember he was um, talking to one dude, and he was was talking about his friend who comes in two hours before practice to do his exercises. And he looked at him and said, like, why aren't you coming in uh, two hours to do practice? And then, you know, he gave some bullshit response, and then he's all like, well, you're either going to do it or you don't. I'm paraphrasing, but right. Yeah, uh, and I thought that was really good because it really taught me that yeah, you're getting a lot of money, but you also have to put in a ton of effort to you know condition your body, keep it conditioned, make sure your reflexes are good, make sure you understand the game, make sure you have your snaps right. Like there's everything that he's trying to teach him, and if people are just laissez-faire about it or you know disruptive about it, you've got to get those people out of the organization. Because it was that laissez-faire, relaxed attitude towards the thing and not, you know, putting in the drills. Because you can tell the Patriots win because they're a well-oiled fucking machine. Right. And and part of it is because they have the monetary resources for it. But part of it is because they've instilled a culture of being a well-oiled fucking machine. Right. And we can tell the Browns aren't. And now he's like... We need to be that well-oiled fucking machine if we're going to win. And if we're not that well-oiled fucking machine, you can get in. No, if, you, if you're not a part of the well-oiled fucking machine and you're willing to improve your stuff, you stay. But if you're not, willing, if you're not part of the well-oiled machine and you're going to make bullshit excuses, you can get the fuck out. Right. And, and, I, and I think we have to look at ourselves that way. In a weird, it's a weird mm-hmm. way. It's kind of a coaching of, of, our own, of our own dynamics as people, you know. Um, I think that's why people have life coaches. I think that's why it was like a joke in the early 2000s. But when you see the dynamic of being an adult player, having this person tell you what to do and it making actual sense, mm-hmm. it kind of gives you the intent that there has to be activities in our own lives and participation in our own lives that we can be coached up a little bit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's opportunities to learn every day and i and i think i i i like kind of this and i i typically side with every team they actually had me liking Jameis winston for the season with tampa bay now i don't like Jameis winston because he's just an asshole and he's Mm -hmm. on a shitty team anyway so Mm -hmm. it's all good i can go back to not liking the tampa bay buccaneers 
but that being said, I uh, I I do enjoy kind of feeling a feel for the Cleveland Browns, getting an understanding of the organization, what they mean to the fans there, what they mean to the city of Cleveland, mm-hmm. and and wanting to see a comeback story, and also wanting to see the participants of that story having hard work being the the element that that brought them together you know Mm -hmm. the the same way that you know through hard work through lessons together even just social lessons you know we can learn to work together as a country as a world you know if we see each other as respectfully as you know a team as the patriots probably see each other you know we're going to work hard we're going to compete even during practice but it's on a level of respect to get to the place that we want to get to, mm-hmm. you know, then we can kind of use that in our own, uh, in our own days. I've been, uh, and transitioning my, my fun talk about the, so Cleveland Browns, like I said, uh, Tuesdays, catch them on your Sundays on your, your local football channel, uh, when they're, when they're playing and, uh, good luck to them in the AFC. Obviously my NFC squad is the Seahawks. So, uh, maybe see them in the Super Bowl and we'll beat you guys, but it'll be fun to play. <laughs> uh, but that being said, uh, I want to mention that I am reading this book and it's called, um, you're more powerful than you think you are. Oh, hey. And it's basically based on the idea of kind of uh, talking about different organized groups and, and how they manifested and what kind of points they took from from how small the group was and how you might think resource um, deficit they were starting from where they weren't really actually, you know, able to, to mount the type of campaigns they were eventually able to, to do. Um, and it just talks about how we all kind of hold that power in ourselves. Our ability to make change uh, socially and dynamically in our world is based on how um, kind of honest we are to our authority on that item. And, and I think sometimes authority isn't given and it might not be accessed in your title, but if you're like the one in the example it gives about uh, the, t- the tomato change in prices that occurred in the early 2000s, okay. how it came apart by basically um, immigrant laborers who were living basically just off the fields to, to come in and, and pick handpick tomatoes because it's one of the products that the picking process can't be mechanized. And so, oh, okay. and so it's, it's people have to pick them. It's kind of probably going to be that way for the, to the end of time. And so because of that, it's always been cheaper and cheaper to pay them by, you know, amounts that aren't really normal labor law per hour. So it'll be things like two cents or three cents a barrel and then you'll, or a bucket, you know, and so you'll bring, you'll just keep bringing these buckets full to get your two cents. And eventually after years of that, um, they, they, they created a strike and that what they did is they aimed their strike at the major buyers. So at the time it was fast food companies. Oh. And so they were like, if you're, you're, you're pushing this price down, if you were willing to pay these prices, that price could, you know, dictate our wage if the, if these agreements were made mm-hmm. and, and over time agreements were made and it, and it, it all started with just, you know, migrants sharing their stories together and recognizing that there was a problem and a few of them reaching out to, you know, lawyers in, in that spoke the language that they spoke, you know, and, and were able to kind of communicate legally what they were trying to do and and help them along, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and it's just kind of one example out of the book. But basically what the book is trying to say is that we all have that in us as far as looking at the problems that are around us and and just piecing together the solution technique, whether that's you know other people who are doing it or getting it notif- noticed and notified, 
to the people that actually can uh, push the progress along, you know? Yeah. And, and I think that's kind of part of what we're doing here with this podcast when we're saying things like go to these town hall meetings, Mm -hmm. even if you're just there to, to, to observe and not necessarily participate or bring an idea, go just to see how it's discussed, see what the pace is. And if you go to a few of them, eventually you're going to see an opportunity and you're going to say, no, I do have an opinion on this. And you'll say something, you know, Mm -hmm. and, or you'll choose to run for something. And so, uh, I do say that's, you know, that's another piece of that puzzle, but there's other pieces, you know, talk, talk to the local employers in your area, make sure they're paying their people a, a, a payable wage, let mm-hmm. them know the dynamics that that can help and afford. And maybe, you know, you'll make the change in, in, in an industry that you don't even know is coming out of your area. So, yeah, you know what? Um, I am waiting for Amazon warehouse workers to go. On. Well, they went on strike in Europe a few weeks ago during Amazon Prime Day, but I'm waiting for them to go on strike in America because I hear so many shitty stories about how and you know because Amazon Prime is everything to Amazon and Amazon's like two day delivery on everything. Brr, 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 brr. All right, and you know what that means. If you want two day delivery on everything, that's why they're like, if you slow the fuck down, you the fuck out of here. And you know that that does a lot. Like that's hard on people. Yeah. So you know, like the fact that Jeff Bezos is a multi billionaire. Well, I don't know if he's a multi billionaire, but the fact that he has a lot of money is partially to the exploitation of those people. And really, like it's a microcosm of what people might call the socialists. And their criticisms of capitalism in and of itself. So yeah, well, man, uh, yeah. that's that's about what I had to to discuss today. Is there anything you wanted to bring up uh, heading into the end of the show here, man? Um, I don't know if I talked about this before. I might have, but if and if I did, then it's a mini callback because I'm re-remembering it. But I remember thinking about how much people like to say the word oppression Olympics. And how dumb I think that is, but to also take it in like a form of a game to explain it. I think if you called it the oppression tier list, it would make more sense. Because in fighting games, uh, um, there's multiple characters that you can have. And a community that usually evolves around the meta. The meta is the game outside of the game is where the high level of play. If you've ever heard of Evo, uh, that's where a lot of people go there to play that. And each game has a tier list. And that tier list is based on, like, their viability and just how good they are within the game. So if you wanted to look at people and the qualities that make them up, it's not a competition. It's not if I have more things that make me oppressed, I get a gold medal. No, it's more about, like, what qualities do you have? And when you enter inside the game, how effective at the game can you be as a base? And... Oppression Olympics is a term used to describe verbal banner between marginalized groups who are trying to determine the weight of their overall oppression, often by comparing race, gender, socioeconomic status, or disabilities, in order to determine who is the worst off and the most oppressed. The term often arises when debates about the ideologies, values of identity politics, intersectionality, and social privilege come up. Yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. All right. Learn something new. <laughs> so, so yeah, when I hear that, like, I'm like, I get what they're saying, but I feel like I want to maybe extrapolate this a little bit more and say, like, where would people be on the quote-unquote tier list? 
and then like so when we so when people are mad at like white cisgender males they're to make a comparison to smash bros uh brawl they're like the meta knight of that game where meta knight is so broken or they're like the akuma of street fighter 2 where like it feels so broken that you know it's not impossible for you to do anything against it and they think that you need to be nerfed but nobody wants their favorite character to be nerfed and then you know we have what we have today so i just wanted to say that 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 I think if you start thinking about it as an oppression tier list and that there's some people who are going to be lower on the tier list, that means it's going to be harder for them to survive in the world. And it's based on all the qualities they have as a person, not just one or a few. And then you go up the list based on ones who have more advantage versus less advantage based on that. And also understanding that, yes, sometimes this, these disadvantages can be mitigated by our own efforts, but that doesn't explain the entirety of the situation. Then you can start to kind of see where people are coming from and why people are aggravated or why, you know, we talk about intersectionality or why we talk about like what the hegemony is and who's being marginalized and why. Wow. <clears throat> well, there you go, guys. Unpack that re-listen to that and uh and and participate in the oppression tier list system <laughs> instead of the olympics uh plus we won't get sued because i hear the olympics uh ioc is uh pretty sue happy uh Damn. you know who's not sue happy is the how you live in podcast which is available at hylbox at gmail.com that's h-y-l-b-o-x at gmail.com for free to your emails uh, and also at Twitter, you can get directly to me at Seatown Mayor because I help your municipality on the coast. And uh, also over here, we have my man Chaz. Where can they get at you, man? That's right. Um, you can find me at CRSII on Twitter for the personal stuff, Chaz Bass for the political stuff, but I swear I don't log into that like ever. So maybe. You'll, you'll, once I find a groove, I'll use it. Um, other than that, Chaz Bass everywhere else uh yeah that's all i got just keeping it like that oh oh i just remembered something uh vox if you haven't seen the vox explained the episode on the female orgasm watch it watch it uh shout out watch to it. sean s jordan on twitter aka sean jordan of the fantasy all fantasy everything podcast uh on recording his album later this week in portland congratulations Yay, first album for Sean Jordan, also known as Episode 11 in the How You Live in Podcast series. Ah. Uh, that being said, folks, you, thank you for listening. Uh, Chaz, it's been great. Yep, it's good to be back. Good to be back. Uh, enjoy the rest of your summer, guys. Peace. And go Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> I come from Cleveland, y'all can really hear it now. Hit them like comic books, kaboom, pow, pow. And two of girls, my spit fine.